Truth Espresso, episode 164. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey, this is Daniel Minnick, the host for Truth Espresso, coming at you with another episode of Truth Espresso Express, as I am driving to work in this morning, this Thursday morning. And as I am recording this, this is a few days after President Biden's State of the Union address. And so I listened to that State of the Union address, and I've listened to different rebuttals, the responses by the Republican uh, governor of Iowa. I also listened to the response by Rashida Tlaib, the uh, more socialistic uh, Democrat who's also a member of a small kind of independent workers party. And some thoughts from people like uh, Ben Shapiro and company. And so, having listened to the President's State of the Union address, I would like to give my thoughts and my rebuttal to some of the things that he said. Now, I'd like to start off by just stating that if I were the President of the country delivering the State of the Union address at this time... I would probably start by saying things quite differently. Uh, if I were president, I would probably break precedent by saying that the state of the union is weak <laughs> or in shambles. <laughs> now, you know, every president is always going to say the state of the union is strong because they want to pitch their own performance, uh, regardless of how good things appear to be economically or, you know, morally or whatever, but, you know, I would like to be completely honest and say that the state of the union <laughs> has never been worse. <laughs> it's weak, it's in shambles because, you know, we have lost our way, we have forsaken our God, we have forsaken uh, the way God has designed nature and human activity to be in favor of things like tyranny and destroying uh, the family structure, destroying human identity the way God has designed things to be. So I would definitely say that, and then I would say that um, we could have a stronger union, we could do better, and I would proceed to explain how and why and how, yeah, so that would be quite different from most of the uh, the presidents <laughs> throughout uh, history would uh, give their State of the Union addresses. But, of course, I'm not the president, and of course, you know, yeah, um, I'm demonstrating every reason why I would likely never be the president of the United States. But let me go over some of the things that uh, President Biden has said in his State of the Union. As I recall, he made several points I listened to. I read summaries of the points that he went through, try to get them fresh in my head. And so 
yeah, when I recall the first significant portion of the State of the Union, he spent talking about the Ukraine conflict, and I understand that the script for the State of the Union address was originally written and then had to be changed and updated to possibly remove some parts and make room for talking about this uh, Russia-Ukraine conflict that came up. I don't know if you'd say unexpectedly or not. Who knows what kinds of intelligence or, you know, uh, new things like this would possibly happen or likely happen and didn't want to say anything, you know, for whatever political reason. But Biden started off talking about the Ukraine conflict and of course, you know, regardless of how you view this thing, you know, it's definitely one of those things that the current powers that be want to latch on to and to make the case that, hey, you know, what are you protesting about? What are you complaining about? This should be a time to gather together and unite. You know, they miss those old days where the American people were united after 9-11 and and such and you know i myself don't like the kind of political unity that a lot of people are seeking because it wants people to let down their guard discard their principles and unite around you know some kind of elite power wanting to control things and it usually results in people giving up their god um ordained liberty and their freedoms and yeah, that's what that kind of unity is. And, you know, and so it's like all about giving certain people unchecked power and, you know, having the benevolent dictator that everyone loves. And, you know, I was not much of a fan of the president, George W. Bush there, and he did not govern really as a conservative. And so he, you know, was big government on the uh, so-called war on terror and he was also big government in domestic programs with the Medicare uh, Part D and the No Child Left Behind and and that kind of stuff and it doesn't matter whether you're an R or a D, you know, if you have power and you have all these people united behind you, often you're going to find yourselves compromising by meeting in the middle and which really results in just okay we'll take the big government things you want and the big government things you want and then we'll just support it all <laughs> yeah and so that's why i have a hard time with this type of unity and you know i will say that uh President Biden said in the State of the Union address that he's not planning to send U.S. troops there into harm's way. And so I would, you know, appreciate that. I would hope that, um, you know, we can hold him to that. And but I would say that, you know, he left us in a situation where Putin thought that he could get away with this kind of attack in Ukraine. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of uh, politics around this. You know, I know that I would definitely say that, you know, it was unprovoked 
but there's politics behind why he did it that you know a lot of people are don't understand it wasn't just oh he just decided to invade ukraine there's the issue of the eastern regions and russian loyalists and and stuff like that and he has this idea that ukraine is rightfully you know culturally a part of the great soviet union that used to be so yeah you could say that he's a that putin is a madman but he has his reasons for things whether they're good or bad and of course i would say they're bad but under the current uh, regime you know under biden's america we have a lot of things that led up to this that you know could have likely not resulted in this and we were certainly more vulnerable to dependence on russia because uh, the president mentioned uh, the shared concerns over fuel prices you know he mentioned you know hurting at the pump but yeah you got to realize that fuel prices are not the only things that go up um, fuel prices affect every other price because it takes fuel for trucks to deliver goods it takes fuel for you know so a lot of factories to manufacture things and so fuel prices are not the only thing that has gone up other thing the prices of other commodities and groceries have gone up you know in near proportion and you know he mentioned that putting sanctions on on russia would result possibly in you know fuel prices going up faster but he tried to encourage us that we could get through this and that we're prepared for it because um yeah if i remember correctly of course just like several months ago when he mentioned the strategic petroleum reserve that he was um you know releasing like about 30 million barrels or or so of oil from there and yeah he doesn't seem to understand just how much oil production you know oil consumption is used commonly in the united states every day because um, on average every day the united states uh, uses about 19 to 20 uh, million barrels of oil every day and you might think that's a lot but you know that's just the way things are run and <laughs> like if you want lots of people to die you would cut that off and um so uh biden announced you know that he's working with his with our allies to uh, avoid russian oil and you know ramp up production um there that we're working with them for that and he mentioned once again that he was going to tap into the strategic petroleum reserve for 30 million barrels of oil and he seems to be so completely out of touch with what you know we really need because what you know, if we were to rely solely on that, that would barely get us through two days of consumption if we even reduced our consumption. <laughs> and that would be very difficult to do that. Um, but, you know, so obviously it's not going to be the, um, you know, only thing that's consumed. So it could be spread out over, you know, a few weeks, something like that. But, yeah, if if we were relying on that in any significant sense, we would be doomed, <laughs> okay? But 
let's think about why we're in such a, a, a situation in the first place. You know, so on the first day that Biden took office, in his inaugural day, he kept a campaign promise that he would shut down the Keystone Pipeline. So, you know, he, you know, in his commitment to uh, get the United States toward zero zero net emissions, zero net carbon emissions, he would try to um, reduce our dependence on fossil fuels, not foreign fossil fuels, but fossil fuels in general, and to make good on his promise, he shut down the Keystone Pipeline so that we uh, locally here would produce less oil, distribute less oil, and also put, of course, people who'd work there out of a job. Yeah, thank you, President. But what did our (laughs) gracious president also do? So he shut down the Keystone Pipeline locally here in the good old U.S. of A. But he he supported opening up a pipeline from Russia to Germany. So it's okay for them to have an oil pipeline opened up to get oil from Russia to make Germany more dependent on Russia oil, but it's also necessary that we lead the world by closing uh, the Keystone Pipeline so that we're more dependent on Russian oil. So yeah, if I recall in 2019, the U.S. finally became a net producer of, um, you know, energy there. But then now under Biden, we went back to being dependent on Russian oil. And then, of course, when you have something like this happen with uh, Russia's attack on Ukraine and we have all the inflation and uh, supply shocks and forced reduction in oil production, bringing up prices, affecting prices everywhere. Then you have an attack from Russia on Ukraine that results in the fear that we could end up paying uh, even more um, for oil because we're more dependent on Russian oil. Yeah, we have this, and I would say too little too late there. There's plenty you could do. There's plenty we could do right now that would get us to switch to more, you know, to be more energy uh, independent and start producing more oil here locally you know there's been always campaigns to drill more we can reopen the keystone pipeline we could uh, drill in alaska but you know the environmental lobbyists don't like that and they're not going to let that happen so they seem to be more in favor of keeping us dependent on foreign oil because they you know the united states is supposed to be a leader in (laughs) in not producing fossil fuels but we still consume it You know, it's just ridiculous. And of course, the push is always to go for more wind and solar and more electric vehicles, which, of course, we can we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. Because, yeah, um, President Biden also mentioned at some point in his speech about uh, wanting to trying to get uh, several hundred thousand <laughs> charging stations for electric cars. And, of course, you know, that issue with uh, electric cars, as some 
some means of reducing emissions is, you know, laughable and um, could fill hours of discussion. But let me just briefly mention that this is not a good solution. This is a problem. So sorry, uh, Mr. President, but, you know, it's not a drop in replacement if it were a replacement for the current situation. So what about electric vehicles? Well, you would have to have, um, you know, millions of Americans, um, you know, the cost of trading in their vehicles for electric vehicles. And of course, if you have a a government-sponsored program to push electric vehicles and all of a sudden you have this big demand for electric vehicles because it's being pushed by the government. The cost of electric vehicles, you know, the laws of supply and demand, the cost of such vehicles would go through the roof. And most Americans are not going to be able to afford that. And then, of course, you'd have the the government spending, you know, trillions of dollars just to make sure that uh, Americans would be able to trade in their vehicles for these expensive electric vehicles, which would then, you know, end up ramping up the cost for it because, you know, as you know, as you subsidize things, the costs go even higher up. (laughs) And so, yeah, Americans would be paying through the nose for these electric vehicles through taxes and spending, if not even partly through their own uh, having to foot the bill out of their own wallets, but either way, it's not free to get this. But, you know, the electric vehicles are not the panacea that the president thinks that they are because they don't (laughs) necessarily help the environment. And just, well, first of all, let's just think of the infrastructure needed for this. So you'd have to have all these stations um, able to house um, chargers, you know, and not every gas station is able to do this and so just the construction alone would uh, have to make it difficult for cars to be able to use um, the gas pumps as (laughs) gas stations are having to undergo construction to put these chargers in not all of them would be able to have the underground uh, you know capacity to deal with that they're not uh, able to deal with the the you know the needs for the construction the infrastructure for that very easily that's its own expense plus <laughs> how many how are you going to have all the chargers that people need for the kind of commutes that they do you'd have to have lots and lots of chargers for every gas station you know in America which is not feasible and then you know because we still don't have electric vehicles, you know, up to par with the time sensitivity that Americans need for their commutes because at best, especially for long commutes, you know, it takes at least a half hour to charge, if I recall correctly, maybe 80 to 90 percent. And that's, you know, that's on a good day. So it takes that instead of uh, being able to fill up in about 
you know, five minutes or so, a 30-minute charge of, you know, partially charging up the battery, that's not feasible. And then, so compound that with (laughs) long lines at the pump or at the charging stations, and you have a real problem on your hands. So you think a lot of gas stations, they can get lines, long lines, even when they have, say, 10 pumps available. So, you know, one charging station's not going to cut it. 10 charging stations is not going to cut it. You would need a lot of real estate and, and the ability to put, you know, so you need a lot of parking place, which will require a lot of laying out and, you know, zoning and all kinds of stuff that the president hasn't thought of to be able to accommodate all the charging stations and the amount of space for lines for charging stations that would be needed to reduce the amount of uh, time for waiting in line plus yes you could have residential uh, chargers you can if you have an electric vehicle you can get a charger for home use but not everyone owns a home with an attached garage you're talking more about the suburbs or when you're talking about the inner cities these are the upscale very wealthy people who can actually have a home with an attached garage uh, you know to hide the charger otherwise you have all these people with extension cords running out of their houses you know in residential areas and of course that would be a recipe for um, you know disaster think of how many people would sneak out and want to park their car and then unplug someone's charger to plug into their own car, someone's uh, extension cord and so on like that. That that would be a disaster. Well, then you say, well, let's build all these residential charging stations near apartment complexes. Yeah, same problem with gas stations, same problem with the inability to retrofit them into most... (laughs) um, residential areas that are not built and ready for that kind of uh, thing and then the construction would make it very difficult for people to be able to park their vehicles near their uh, apartments and so on so yeah you have to think about these types of things that's reason why we don't we can't just whole hog embrace electric vehicles plus there's the problem with the fact that you know how do you produce that much electricity merely charging batteries batteries themselves you know there's the issue of landfills and batteries running out of charge you know and needing to be replaced and what do we do with them you know like how do we recycle them and then yeah producing enough electricity for most americans or all americans to drive electric vehicles you know that's a lot of electricity how does it get produced well you know there's not enough you know wind turbines and uh, you know water and stuff to produce um these you know the electricity for these vehicles and so yeah if you think wind and solar is going to uh, be enough to supply the amount of electricity needed for all these electric vehicles, um, you're dreaming. <laughs> and think about 
okay, solar, well, you know, do we have the infrastructure to produce solar-powered panels but with, uh, you know, solar panels? You know, do we have solar, do we have a solar-powered infrastructure that would help us to produce uh, solar-powered equipment <laughs> with solar power so that it would be green? No, we would have to use a lot of uh, fossil fuel infrastructure to produce the solar panels needed and to to replace the solar panels needed, you know, using fossil fuels. So we'd see a lot of fossil fuels ramp up production uh, and be diverted uh, to, you know, making solar and wind equipment. Yes, I know, I admit I'm not an engineer, but I have listened to um, interviews with uh, people who are experts in this field in wind and solar power, so secondhand information, I've got, I've heard this somewhere, okay? So, yeah, um, there is no drop-in replacement. Solar and wind would have to be produced using fossil fuels, and you'd have to figure out a way to make wind and solar that would meet current energy demands and be able to produce wind and solar equipment using wind and solar power and that's just not happening what about wind power you know relying on wind and solar is something that just cannot be done 24 7 and also wind power think of all the wind turbines that would be needed now we see all those grand pictures of of wind turbines in the bread baskets of america and yeah we have um, some good wind power locations in america but to get the kind of wind power that the green people are talking about would require you know an awful lot of real estate for that you know not all real estate is suited for wind power and to make it suited for wind power requires a lot of you know leveling of land you know um, which would of course would require a lot of fuel uh, fossil fuel consumption for that cost for that you know construction process and then putting all the wind turbines in you know that requires a lot of wind tunneling and and dedicating an awful lot of real estate that could be used for, say, growing crops because, you know, any wind turbine air area, it requires flatlands, it requires lots of wind tunneling uh, to blow the, these turbines. So basically you end up with an arid area that's not suited for crop production. So we would have to use up a lot of real estate that couldn't be used for crop production to produce wind energy and so yeah food prices would soar and there's not simply not enough land just land alone for wind turbines you know and we have to rely on the wind happening as needed because wind power is just simply not up to par for this so what do we often forget about in all this push for green stuff is nuclear power and of course the first thing that comes to your mind is that japanese uh, nuclear plant that exploded 
But compared to fossil fuels and innovations in nuclear power, the likelihood of that actually happening is significantly lower than the uh, nuclear power rejecting green pundits would have you to believe. And the proof for that is that there are European countries. For example, France has at least 70% of their power, you know, their energy running on nuclear power. So they prove that nuclear power is feasible. But of course, the green pundits, the environmentalists in the United States aren't keen on nuclear power. They're going to scaremonger because they don't like the fact that nuclear power is a good solution toward a, you know what they want but they don't want a good easy solution they want something that requires um, us to give up our you know freedoms and our treasure to a green new deal or such that would you know make all kinds of promises that it would just make lots of jobs and you know there's really no cost to it it's just the oil um, company that are being greedy and so we could move to uh, wind and solar if it weren't for them getting in the way because they don't like uh, challenges to their oil monopolies but the truth is far from that the truth is that wind and solar is not up to par and trying to just whole hog you know this quick in a decade type of thing that the green new deal proponents want for wind and solar would just simply result in mass starvation uh their promises that they make cannot simply be kept all it would be is a move toward a you know an energy dictatorship where you know there'd be mass starvation and death um and giving up liberty in favor of energy czars that simply would not be able to produce the energy needed for <laughs> food and health care. And they'll make all the promises in the world, but they do not understand energy or the environment. And unfortunately, I've parked here at work, so I will continue <laughs> talking about uh, Biden's speech state of the union speech as i drive home from work um, today that's my plan if the practice principle is vital for teaching such morally neutral task as tying shoes how much more important is it for training children in christ-like character this is yvette hampton host of the schoolhouse rocked podcast Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Hey there, once again, this is Daniel Middick, your host for Truth Espresso, and this is Truth Espresso Express, and I am driving home from work on this Thursday evening as of this recording. I am doing part two of my analysis of uh, President Biden's State of the Union speech. 
So the last part, uh, I talked about the Ukraine conflict a little bit, and I also talked about (laughs) uh, the president's lack of understanding about energy and the costs of energy and what really is the solution. And he seems to think, as I've heard him say many times, that we can just somehow work our way into using electric cars. And he's boasted about proposing solutions to get several hundred thousand charging stations installed in the country. And of course, um, I talked about how that is completely not feasible, how, you know, the reason we don't have... uh, electric cars in use in the United States on a wide scale like is because of the limitations and the problems and how if we were to be forced to go to electric vehicles that would absolutely grind the economy to a halt which would ultimately result in mass starvation but of course you know idealist demagogues don't understand that so now the president also talked about how he was fighting inflation and of course he doesn't want to accept that he and his policies and those who promote those uh, his policies are to blame for inflation. No, not I'm not going to say you know that they are fully to blame for it because you know even President Trump beforehand with the pandemic spending that caused a lot of money printing and also the lockdowns. Which yes, I admit that a lot of them were enforced by you know, regionally by mayors and uh, governors and so on and President Trump didn't really have a federal lockdown policy and I remember reading articles saying claiming that people were complaining that they wanted a federal lockdown policy and I I would just I have to be incredibly thankful that that didn't happen. But yeah, uh, President Trump was responsible for a lot of uh, spending and the seeds for inflation that happened in 2020. And yeah, uh, President Biden did not uh, reverse that policy. In fact, he uh, wanted to continue it and then uh, propose and sign new spending initiatives, including a over $1 trillion infrastructure bill and then he also wanted to push for a two trillion dollar build back better bill and you just think like all why is it that these um, Democrats seem to think that government spending actually reduces inflation but that's what um, he tried to claim he tried to uh, talk about how he was in fighting he was fighting inflation, but he showed no understanding of what it is, what causes it, and how to fight it. And uh, a while ago, I did have some episodes of True Espresso kind of walking through economics from a biblical and liberty-minded perspective, and I did uh, define what inflation is and how the definition in the dictionary, just like the definition of, you know, racism and, um, you know, marriage and stuff has changed over time, well, likewise, the definition of an inflation changes over time from the actual act of creating new money as the cause 
because, you know, that that itself is the inflation and it results in rising prices. But the new economics wants to try to claim that just rising prices itself is inflation, but prices can rise from supply shocks without technically or hypothetically a change in the supply of money. Why would you call that inflation? And of course, the the purpose is to get you to look the other way and think that there really is no connection between spending and debt and money production and inflation. Well, if you increase the supply of money without somehow, you know, having the supply of goods and services increase alongside it, then you end up with inflation. And usually when you have a monopolistic creation of, you know, the money supply with spending. So it's interesting that President Biden is so confident that his trillions of dollars of spending are somehow going to uh, actually fight inflation. He emphasizes that a lot. And so, you know, just, you know, look, like even assuming that government spending were like uh, business investment, just because someone puts up capital doesn't guarantee that it's actually going to be profitable. And when it comes to government spending monopoly, you know, you end up with uh, prices being bid up for contractors, you end up with a lot of waste, and so you're going to end up with a lot more inflation. But uh, the president chided uh, corporations uh, for greed. You know, I've seen that a lot, even from uh, the Rashida Tlaib (laughs) response that somehow, you know, inflation is really just an illusion for all of a sudden a bunch of corporations just decide to get greedy together at the same time. And and of course, I want to ask the question, wait, aren't they greedy all the time in your view? Why do they just seem to get collectively more greedy like just massively more greedy at the same time in certain convenient parts of the economic cycle or during uh, you know more trying times like maybe there's such a thing as printing too much money spending it and giving it to your um, lobbying friends and you know not enough supply uh, and stuff caused by lockdowns and stuff meaning more money chasing fewer goods and services that makes the cost go up you know maybe uh, supply and demand is actually a thing from economics 101 you know but of course politicians and someone like uh, Biden who's been in the government for decades and not really with any real (laughs) you know completely out of touch um, exposure to actual work um, doesn't really understand Understand how things like this actually happen in the real world. He also was, uh, he said that it was critical that, you know, Congress accept his Federal Reserve (laughs) nominations, his nominations to the Federal Reserve Board, and that it was critical that they do that in the help to fight inflation. Well, his nominations to the Federal Reserve Board are not exactly inflation-fighting hawks. In fact, they said that, you know, uh, Powell himself has said that um, we should 
forget the whole idea that inflation is transitory. We need to remove that from our vocabulary and accept that inflation is here to stay for several years, you know, for the foreseeable future. And like, okay, we're facing inflation now, measuring it about, you know, 7% conservatively to, you know, as much as 15% if you measure it with historical methods. And, you know, the highest inflation of about 40 years when you compare like what did <laughs> how did we fight inflation or at least what was one of the tools for fighting inflation 40 years ago when you had um, 1979 1980 with similar uh, interest uh, similar inflation rates well you had uh, uh, Fed Chairman Paul Volcker as much as I detest the Federal Reserve he actually saw the writing on the wall and to fight you know 15% inflation he raised interest rates to 20% but you know what do we have now oh talks about raising uh, a quarter a half maybe up to 2% you know from zero uh, up to 2% over the course of maybe a year or two and uh, you know and you have to ask the question well if inflation is a, is at uh, 7 to 15 percent most likely just exactly how is uh, you know a quarter to two percent uh, interest rate supposed to fight uh, 15 percent inflation huh you know uh, we need another Paul Volcker at least that mindset to we need someone who actually understands economics and math <laughs> President Biden urged Congress to increase um, the federal minimum wage to 15%. You know, you have this fight for 15 thing, and uh, with inflation that we have now, eventually it might not um, become you know, that far-fetched to have a federal minimum wage of 15%. I mean, we have a lot of uh, low-skilled jobs inching upward toward that without a federal minimum wage needing to, you know, guarantee that companies that are desperate for work will actually pay people close to that amount now. So forcing wages up will decrease inflation? How does that work, Mr. President? You know, he blames inflation on supply shortages, but, you know, and such, but what are some of the causes of supply shortages? Well, there's not as much labor. You know, you had less work. <laughs> resulting with in less labor, resulting in less output, and what does the president want to do? He wants to put upward pressure on labor prices, which would then put upward pressure on the ability to hire people and get work done. So if you have less work, what do higher uh, wage floors cause? They cause less work. And remember, the cost of labor is another price in the market. You know, um, people like uh, President Biden don't seem to understand that labor incurs another price. It's not some other thing in the market. <laughs> the cost of labor is another price on the market just like the cost of apples and oranges and computers.
So when you have things like inflation where the price of apples and and uh, gas and stuff is going up, the president thinks that, oh, to fight that, we just need to push the price of labor up. Uh, yeah, that's not going to help the price of gas and apples and so on to go down if you push more prices up. All you're going to do is ensure that the prices likely get pressure to go up even more. So with a coercive increase in a minimum wage, and I know I could make the argument that we should just totally abolish the minimum wage, but for now, let's just say that we don't increase it. Now, an increase in the minimum wage forcing the idea that, that someone who wants to work and someone who wants to pay for labor cannot uh, legally agree on an arrangement unless it's for at least a certain price. Well, then the cost of labor goes up, and then companies who uh, will find ways to cut costs, perhaps they'll automate, perhaps you know they'll only hire people who have demonstrate that they have special skills for the job, and then others who are only worth uh, lower skilled labor will be out of luck. They won't be able to get hired. So their cost of living goes up as they're making no income. And the cost of labor in general goes up, which would ultimately result in passing those costs on to the consumer. So, as I said before, the on the contrary to President Biden's plan for countering inflation and expecting to be able to increase the minimum wage, it can put pressure on other prices because an increase in the cost of labor would re result in even more increases in the prices of the output of labor because of the price of labor going up. Meanwhile, those who can't get a job because companies can't afford to hire them at the new minimum wage would have to deal with zero income against increasing costs of living. So here's my proposed solution. Stop thinking that the government can fix problems that are caused by government with yet more government. Uh, if you really want to fight inflation, because inflation is a monetary phenomenon caused by a government monopoly on spending and increasing the supply of money, how about you reduce deficit spending, reduce taxes, reduce welfare payments uh, for people to stay home, reduce regulations on the economy, allow the free market to work. I guarantee you that if you just trust um, people to make uh, exchanges on the market mutually without the government getting in the way, um, you will get more produced with less money being created and that will result in lower prices and it will result in higher standards of living for everyone. And oh, and, and never implement a lockdown again for any reason whatsoever. <laughs> there. <laughs> That's my solution to fighting against inflation and preventing yet more supply shocks or, you know, more reasons for inflation. 
Well, I am getting close to home. I'm about to arrive at home, so that, unfortunately, will bring an end to this part, but I am going to continue, because there's a lot more to talk about in the the State of the Union. We've got to get to um, the President's uh, talk about um, handling the pandemic and also his jabs at Big Pharma, and I am certainly no man a fan of big pharma but i will say that his policies are certainly not consistent you know what's good for the goose and what's good is what's good for the gander and so stay tuned for the next part of truth espresso express covering the state of the union address the christian podcast community is a cohesive group of like-minded Christian podcasters proclaiming the truths of Christ truths of Christ with expertise and passion in the areas of theology, church history, Christian living, evangelism, apologetics, parenting, homeschooling, sermons, and much, much more. So check us out at christianpodcastcommunity.org christianpodcastcommunity.org One stop for all your favorite Christian podcasts. Hey friends, Daniel here, uh, heading to work this uh, Friday morning as this of this recording for another part of a Truth Espresso Express, responding to President Biden's State of the Union address. When I last left off, I believe I was talking about uh, the minimum wage, uh, wanting to raise it to fifteen dollars an hour. Now, let me just briefly talk about the problem with the minimum wage. Let's say you had no minimum wage. Does that mean that, you know, employers would pay people zero dollars? Well, think about this scenario. So let's say some company decided to hire people for zero dollars, like it's just abject, voluntary slavery. (laughs) And then uh, some enterprising uh, employer comes along and says, hmm, let's see, I can get all the labor if I just offer a penny per hour, you know, they'll want to work for me for sure, because a penny per hour is mathematically infinitely more than zero, (laughs) if you uh, multiply it out or whatever. (laughs) And then another enterprising employer comes along and says, hey, I could double that, I could get the labor if I offer two pennies per hour. And then another one comes along and says, well, hey, I can raise it to three and so on. And, uh, you know, you see how this works. So without a mandatory minimum wage, you know, 
there used to be such a time in history and people still got paid and they weren't paid almost nothing to crawl around in the dirt and get their limbs blown off and you know and <laughs> so real wages were low in the past mostly because things weren't as productive as you actually have to invent and produce and the more you invent and produce the more efficient things get the more you can afford to pay people higher um, because they're more productive and so on that's how an economy naturally evolves now at some point there will become more of a um, equilibrium because as I said supply and demand um, labor has its supply and demand and uh, money has its supply and demand the need for producing things and how much you could sell them for you know has its own supply and demand so there's nothing exempt from the laws of supply and demand now how often have you ever seen like the general public protest because the price of apples was not high enough like we demand that the price of apples be higher you know we demand that apples be at least a dollar fifty per apple <laughs> and it may come to that eventually with inflation who knows but like have you ever seen general public um, protest that the price of apples is not high enough well you think okay most likely you know if anything if if things were to happen or their supply shortages and the cost of apples went up people would protest that the uh, price of apples were too high but you know only if you saw a bunch of people working for apple pickers protesting that the price of apples were not high enough you would uh, understand that but you would say hey that's just a special interest but you see a lot of people in the general public protesting that the price of labor the price of unskilled labor isn't high enough um, at, but labor is a service it's a good you know basically on the market a subject to supply and demand and you know there is no justice price for the for unskilled labor that isn't subject to the laws of supply and demand just like any other product whether it's uh, part of the supply chain up on the supply chain or toward the bottom in the storefront or services or goods or whatever it's all subject to supply and demand and so the minimum wage is technically not needed at all in fact it's legal extortion now let's move on to the president talking about the pandemic you know the virus and how they handle it and how we're getting beyond it I would have liked for him to explain how the United States has close to a million documented deaths from the virus but worldwide uh, there are about six million documented deaths from the virus and you know if you don't run the math all you're thinking about is how much of a tragedy that is which indeed it is but I want to emphasize how much more of a tragedy it is for the good old US of A because we have one out of six one out of six virus deaths were in the United States so if you calculate it out it's about 16 percent of virus deaths were in the United States but what about the population of the United States how does that compare to the global population well 
the United States has about 4% of the global population. So why, Mr. President, does the U.S. have over four times the global average for the virus deaths? Why is it that we have about over 16%, close to 17% actually, of virus deaths, but only 4% of the world's population? That's about four times as many deaths of the average global population for the virus as there is in the United States. Doesn't that show that the policies that are primarily coming out of the U.S. and being pushed on the world by the U.S. are not working, at the very least not working. At worst, they're actually causing more of the deaths. And these policies emphasize jabs, and they suppressed repurposed drugs for early treatments. So why is it that there were more deaths in 2021 or even in the in the months of 2021 that would correspond with the months of 2021 march to the end of the year 2020 before there was a, a jab available but then once the jab was available and the, you had the policies trying to push it and even force it on people in 2021 why were there more deaths from the virus in nine months of 2021 than in nine months of 2020? Why is there no explanation for that when the president clearly said in his speech that the jabs were effective? Why is it that African countries that make hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin more available to people and people were taking them prophylactically, they were taking them as a preventative measure, why do they have much lower death rates from the virus than the United States did? Is there anyone going to explain that? Or do we just ignore that because we have an agenda to push jabs and masks and not actually do early treatment for the virus until, you know, of course, our friendly Pfizer creates some kind of uh, early treatment pill that is, you know, of course, patented and costs more than the repurposed drugs that um, doctors like Dr. Peter McCullough testified and demonstrated and actually used to treat people with proven results, early treatment of the virus with a cocktail of repurposed drugs. You know, you have hydroxychloroquine, you have ivermectin, you have doxycycline, you have azithromycin, you have uh, vitamin C and vitamin D and quercetin. You know, you, you have all kinds of these things in proportion depending on the time frame depending on weight you know it's the doctor and the patient doing early treatment here but you know the the policy early on with the virus was basically there is no known treatment hey citizen hey doctor there is no treatment for this until someone comes to the hospital in dire straits and then we have treatment and then you could do something like then we'll push something like remdesivir. 
But why is it that the highly jabbed countries like the U.S. and Israel and Gibraltar and, you know, Israel was basically the playground, you know, the contractual playground for Pfizer and their jabs and they'd get early access to the jabs and, you know, they would be the ones, you know, in the lead for booster shots. Why is it that they had (laughs) higher case rates and higher eventually higher hospitalization rates and eventually they could not uh, propagandize their way out of the fact that they'd have higher death rates uh, um, and you couldn't blame it on the minuscule people who didn't get the jab who were trying to figure out how to navigate life without getting the jab you know, you can't blame it on all these invisible people who, there's not very many of them there. So, eventually, we're going to have some splaining to do about this. Now, the president mentioned that he, that Pfizer's produce, recently produced more, you know, early treatment pills for the virus. You know, these are, he didn't say the name, but I looked it up. These are called Paxlovid, and it's basically two different drugs together um, and he purchased more of these than any other country so oh thrill yeah we (laughs) as always we're in the lead for treating the virus and yet we're not doing uh, very well compared to African countries with our treatment because you know we had suppression of the various uh, drugs uh, that I mentioned before but let's make some comparison here with something else he said he complained about big pharma that he wants to stick it to big pharma because you know insulin you know and he had a young boy and his father there and they suffer with uh, diabetes and you know and he appealed to the idea that fathers wish that they they could be good fathers because they've got to be able to treat their children but it costs them too much hey i'm on board with that i agree i don't like big pharma monopolizing insulin and uh he mentioned that it costs ten dollars a a vial but big pharma charges 30 times more for that How do they do that? Where's the competition? Maybe it's because the FDA actually allows that to happen. Maybe it's a legal monopoly. And where does the legal monopoly come from? The government. And, you know, we could, if we just allowed more competition, and rather than just say, oh, well, we need some kind of government-sponsored health care to force prices down or subsidize paying for it, oh, yeah, that'll bring the price down. It'll just, it'll increase the price, but spread that increased price among the population, you know, the single-payer method. But he failed to realize how his big pharma Fauci regime has fought against the cheap and repurposed and effective early treatment for the virus, as I mentioned before. Because normally, before the the war against early treatment, you could get HCQ and IVM and others for like $10 a pop, like, you know, the cost of, (laughs) the wholesale cost of insulin. But let's see, what does the regime uh, charge for their treatment after they don't do early treatment and force people to come into the hospitals with severe conditions and then they'll treat them intravenously with 
with um, a drug called remdesivir. Well, guess what? Remdesivir costs about $10 a dose for its toxicity that shouldn't even be administered. And what do hospitals charge? Because Big Pharma... charges the hospitals over $3,000 per dose of something that costs them $10 to make. But yet, we don't hear anything about that. And anyone who dares fight against Big Pharma on this front, the same regime who complains about insulin costing too much because of Big Pharma, won't allow you know the known repurposed drugs for tre- for early treatment of the virus but they will praise uh, remdesivir in the hospital that was known to kill about 50 per- about 50% of the uh, patients in the clinical trials before the virus and yet that's what we're going to use and we're going to and we actually have people being harassed by the hospital if they refuse to take remdesivir. So we're willing to let Big Pharma charge, <laughs> you know, over 300 times for this poison while we complain that they charge 30 times for insulin and there are solutions to that, but we don't want to hear it. We don't want to allow the free market to work. The president mentioned assault rifles with high-capacity magazines. Of course, his knowledge of so-called assault rifles is non-existent. And, you know, he said that this wouldn't infringe the Second Amendment, that it saves lives. Well, yeah, because, you know, they don't want it to infringe. The Second Amendment, you know, says nothing about what qualifies as people being armed. But the president joked because he says that deer didn't need to wear uh, protective military-grade vests, you know. But, of course, this demonstrates what he doesn't understand about uh, gun ownership and the Second Amendment. It has nothing to do with protecting hunting. Now, hunting is, you know, a byproduct of it, but it always had to do with the freedom of the people not to fear their government. It had to do with protecting the people against tyranny, and it has to do with a voluntary militia. Of course, he also mentioned the so-called need for the right to choose. Now, he did, he just kind of mentioned that in passing, but it's clear that he mentioned that in light of the uh, bill in Congress that, um, you know, was at least... Uh, Put shot down for now in the Senate, but Rashida Tlaib and her more socialist response uh, mentioned that you know we need to support a bill being passed in Congress that is somehow immune <laughs> from any Supreme Court. Now think about that. Isn't the Supreme Court at least by their role supposed to determine whether bills passed by Congress are constitutional? You know, how how can you just pass a bill that's somehow immune from the Supreme Court, you know? And the Constitution, of course, says nothing about abortion. It says nothing about the right to kill uh, unborn children. Now, what the Constitution and the Bill of Rights does say, it says Congress 
shall write no law about certain things respecting an establishment of, of establishment of religion prohibiting the free exercise thereof the right of the pe- right of uh, freedom of the speech or of the press and the right to assemble that is what's protected from laws of Congress and that's what's enshrined in the Constitution also the right of the people to against warrantless searches and seizures without just cause without probable cause and how warrant should issue so things about hate so-called hate speech and the ability to search people you know digitally or whatever you know that is unconstitutional but it seems like we want to support those things which are clearly in violation of the constitution but then claim that abortion somehow needs to be enshrined in the constitution when it clearly isn't because abortion is the murder of the unborn it's the murder of human beings like why is everything upside down when it comes to these um, idealistic democrats uh, he also, of course, mentioned uh, transgender rights and that he has their back. Okay, what about young children that I was listening about a recent case where there was a uh, custody battle and, of course, the judge ruled in favor of the mother who wanted to uh, force her son to you know, undergo surgery and and drug treatments to become a girl, as it were. That, of course, it doesn't technically make you a girl. But and the father was fighting against that. Now he's running, you know, for a a local office, to, you know, because he's trying to save his son from this mutilation when. You know, a seven-year-old boy doesn't know enough. You know, there's there's reasons why seven-year-olds can't make choices about, you know, different things that we recognize in law. But for some reason, if they have these ideas, or at least, you know, maybe adults who want things to happen will interpret things you know like say if a boy you know happens to play dolls or puts a wig on top of a parent's head or something like that then oh that's (laughs) that proves that he wants to be a girl he's really a girl trapped inside a boy body and therefore we have to help him out with uh you know drug treatment and surgery and he said so the president said he has their back He also, toward the end, once again called to get rid of the Senate filibuster and pass the so-called Voting Rights Act. Now, you know, I just parked at work, and so, you know, there's not a... I'll just say a little bit, there's... There's a lot more that can be said about this. It's uh, the political posturing months ago about, you know, Jim Crow and stuff, all to present an ID. But, you know, like before, they're all in favor about, you know, cities like New York and L.A. and so on implementing jab passports <laughs> um and so like if they wanted everyone they pushed their patients was wearing thin they wanted everyone to get jabs and you know prove it to get into restaurants and so on why is it so difficult for you know someone who actually is a citizen to have some form of id you can get a something you can get an id that isn't a driver's license and all you got to do is bring you know even to vote a lot of states or cities you know they have things like 
proof of payment of uh, a utility bill. Like they're trying to go out of their way to make sure that you can vote as long as you prove that you're actually a a citizen there. You know, and if of course if we have a jab card or something, then you can. Uh, present that like all it is is that you've got to show that you're actually a real person or that you actually have citizenship this is nothing to discriminate against minorities or handicapped or whatever uh, you know they the so-called voting rights act just wants to uh, make it easier for undocumented immigrants and stuff to be able to vote because they know that the Democrats offer welfare and free stuff for them while not holding them accountable to the law like undocumented immigrants can come in and they're not forced to get jabs and so on but they can get um, you know free health care and welfare and stuff and so they know where the votes would be going and that's why they want this type of thing. Biden also pleaded for the Equality Act to arrive on his desk. Now, yeah, the Equality Act is absolutely destructive, and um, Chelsea and I did three episodes on how utterly catastrophic that would be. Now, he ended by uh, mentioning funding the police, securing our borders, and fixing the immigration problem. You know, this was another uh, thing to try to unite and try to appeal to more conservative people these things that he said sounded like trump talking points and um, if trump said these exact same words in a state of the union speech he would have been lambasted for racism and ethno-nationalism in you know the news after the speech but of course biden could say it and get away with it and but his words really mean nothing because his actions prove that he's he he has done nothing and intends to do nothing really about those. He's just trying to score points and perhaps improve his uh, <laughs> his rating for people who will take him at his word and not judge him by his actions. Now, of course, there are other things, but I've got to put this down, and that will be the end of the response to the State of the Union address. And I would say that as Christians, let's fight for truth. Let's not be fooled. Let's hold people accountable for their actions. You know, as the Bible says, by their fruits you shall know them. You know, a man can say he has faith, but, you know, if his works don't uh, demonstrate his faith, then that so-called faith is dead. The words that claim it are dead. You know, we can apply that to things like campaign promises and yeah, and so I pray that God has mercy on our nation, and as uh, you know, James White said, even after 9-11, as people were shouting, God bless America, he said, God bless America with repentance. And that's what I pray here, because this State of the Union address demonstrates someone who doesn't understand truth, doesn't understand uh, God's law, doesn't understand morality, doesn't understand economics. It's nothing but destruction. And it's nothing but what you know, it's nothing but Satan's uh, delusions. And so, likewise, I iterate, God bless America with repentance. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. 
Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso.